Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away, because she's crying out after us. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came, knelt before him, and said, Lord, help me. He answered, It isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, Woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was healed. The word of the Lord. So, for this spring and summer, we have returned to an ongoing teaching series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at chapters 13 through 20. And the sermon series is entitled, Jesus Unfiltered, because in these chapters, two things are happening. Jesus is more clearly revealing, more directly saying who he is. And we also get to see as he does that how Many different people are responding to Jesus as he reveals more of who he is, how people understand him according to their expectations, according to their agenda, and not for who he really is. My hope and goal for this series is that we, our church, my Christian friends who are watching and following this service along with us, that we would see how we are doing this, how we filter out parts of Jesus that we don't like, that we don't understand, that don't fit our preconceived notion of who he is, some, some parts that we simply don't want, and that we would more truly see and follow the real and the full Jesus. To those who are exploring Christianity, we're so glad that you're here with us, that you're following along with this sermon series. My hope for you is that this series would help you Peel away and put away and put aside a filtered Jesus that you may have picked up along the way. Maybe it's a Jesus that you have encountered uh, through the filters of certain cultural interpretations or political or national or maybe American filters that you would put all that aside and you would see Jesus for who he is and decide whether or not to believe and follow him. And my hope is that you would indeed choose to follow him. Okay, the title of my message for today, you heard the passage, and I want to encourage you to have it up in front of you, because we're going to walk through in a very detailed fashion, because if you were reading along with us, you're probably wondering what is going on. What is Jesus doing? The title of my sermon today is When Jesus Called a Woman a Dog. There it is, that's what happened. And to be honest, if I had not already committed to working through this series in the Gospel of Matthew and going chapter by chapter, section by section in a series specifically focused on how Jesus doesn't fit our categories. He challenges all that we bring to the table when we think and filter 
Him through our lenses. I, if, I, if I wasn't already committed to this series, I probably would have skipped this passage because it's so difficult and it blows our minds. What is happening here? And as I studied it, the truth is it became even more difficult. Every verse, every part of this passage is actually pretty contested when you read the scholars. So it's not an easy and neat passage. I certainly have not resolved everything But I am convinced there's something here of Jesus we need. This story definitely fits the description. Jesus unfiltered because as you read it, you're probably thinking, Jesus, you should have filtered this out. Why would you speak to a person in this way? How could you call someone a dog? Jesus, you should have filtered that one out. And if not Jesus, say Matthew, the gospel writer. Why did you include this? Just leave that one out of the story. Why did he include it? Why did Jesus say this? What's happening here? At face value, this seems very derogatory. This seems very offensive. So far out of character from what we know of Jesus up until this point. And as I already said, it doesn't seem like it's a great Mother's Day text. But as we will see, and I hope to show you, this is one of the Bible's greatest moms. I'm going to go verse by verse And what we're going to do here is first look at the story, look at the shock, and the truth is the way we, uh, if we walk through this verse by verse, we'll see it gets more shocking with each verse until we get to the end, which is the greatest shock of all. So we're going to talk about the shock, and then we're going to say, what's the meaning, what's the purpose of this, and then look at the lessons we are meant to take away. So first, verse 21, when Jesus left there, There being the place where the boat came to shore, you remember last week, Gennesaret, the west side of Galilee. So he was in the territory of Israel, but then when the boat came, uh, when he left that place, he withdrew. And where did he go? It says he went to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came. So here, two very unexpected things that we need to know in order to understand what's happening in the story where Jesus is, and who Jesus is talking to. The way Matthew describes these things here is very intentional. Matthew wrote for a Jewish Christian audience. That was his primary audience, people who were raised Jewish, in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish culture. And so, as we see the specific choice of words that Matthew picked here, he's using the language of the Old Testament. He's using different words than Mark used when he accounted this story or wrote this story out. And Mark wrote for a Gentile audience. So what we see uh, Matthew doing is he is using words that would intentionally trigger the feelings associated with these words. Why? To get a particular gut reaction from the folks who would be reading this. He used the words Tyre and Sidon. They're used many times throughout the Old Testament, and if you look it up, it's never good. (laughs) Tyre and Sidon were north of Israel. They were nations and cultures that always stood against the nation and the culture of Israel. Tyre goes all the way back to Joshua. Sidon all the way back to Genesis. There's a long history there of being enemies. Tyre and Sidon would attack Israel. Whenever they had the opportunity, 
They would entice Israel away from their faith with their gods and their religion. They would gloat over Israel whenever Israel was down and defeated. Another historian of the time, Josephus, wrote of Tyre, they are notoriously our bitterest enemies. So that's where Jesus was. Who is he talking to? Matthew says this is a Canaanite woman. And this would have been a shocking way to describe anybody at this time because by this time, the, the nation of Canaan, the term Canaanite, that fell out of usage. In the Gospel of Mark, he uses the term Syrophoenician. That's how people of this time would describe that region and people from this region. So why would Matthew call her a Canaanite? Well, in the context of the story of the whole Bible, a Canaanite is about as far away from God as a person can be and can get. She was a Canaanite. She was a woman. A Jewish rabbi would not be speaking to a woman, even a Jewish woman. There were rules for that, let alone a Canaanite woman. So just note that for now. Where is Jesus? He's far outside the boundaries of where God would be expected to be present, to be at work. This was godless territory in the minds of everybody and the Jewish nation of the day. And this woman is far outside the boundaries of someone who anyone would expect or would probably want to believe in the God of Israel. Verse 22, let's keep going. The woman's cry. So what happens? That's where Jesus is. That's who he's talking to. This woman comes up to him. It says, she kept crying out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. So some type of spiritual oppression was upon her daughter. It manifests in various ways as we see throughout the New Testament, often with physical manifestations. This Canaanite woman, what is she saying? She is crying out a very Jewish prayer. She is seeking mercy. Have mercy on me from the Jewish Messiah and King, the son of David. That's the title she uses, which is a main theme in the Gospel of Matthew. It's how he starts his whole Gospel. He says, here's what I'm writing about. This is the story, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, Matthew 1.1. So here, a Canaanite woman gets the entire theme of this story that Matthew is writing about Jesus. More than the disciples, more than the devout Jewish leaders. This is shocking and outside anyone's expectations. And it keeps going. Verse 23. Where is he? Who is he talking to? What does she say? It's blowing everybody's mind. And then, verse 23, what does Jesus do in this shocking situation? Nothing. He did not say a word to her. There is this deliberate silence from Jesus which is yet another shock. Jesus hasn't done this ever before in this gospel leading up to this point. It's not how he's responded to anyone, especially people who come to him in desperation and need. He's never done this. Is he just ignoring her? We can assume that Jesus wouldn't let this go on and on forever, right? This is a deliberate silence. This is an intentional, strategic non-response of some sort. Is he waiting for his disciples to respond? Well, let's see what happens. Next verse, they do respond. His disciples say, Jesus, they approach him, urge him saying, send her away. 
because she's crying out after us. What are they saying? Well, there are a couple ways to understand this. One, are they saying, just get rid of this woman. Just send her away. Get, get, out, get out of here. Or are they saying, Jesus, all right already. Would you just do what she's asking? Heal her daughter so she'll leave. Either way, they show they don't really care about this woman or her daughter. They're just annoyed by her and saying, just deal with it, Jesus. I think it's most likely the second interpretation or the second choice here. They're saying, Jesus, just do what she wants so she'll leave. And it really depends on who Jesus is speaking to in the next verse, 24. If you look at verse 24, if they were saying, Jesus, send her away without healing her, then why would Jesus say back to them this? I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. I.e., it sounds like he's saying, I'm not going to heal her daughter. That's what it appears to be. It wouldn't make sense if Jesus was being asked just to send her away. It seems like the disciples were saying, heal her, send her away now, just do it. And Jesus says, well, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's where it gets even more harder and difficult right there in verse 24. That's exactly what we might expect from a typical Jewish rabbi of the day to say to a Canaanite woman, you're not my ministry. You're outside the boundaries of my teaching responsibility. You are not one of my sheep. I am not here for you. But that's not what we would expect from Jesus, is it? You just read the Gospel of Matthew. He's already healed Gentiles before. He's already in Tyre and Sidon. What are you doing here, Jesus, if you were only sent to the lost sheep of Israel? And in the passage that follows this, we see Jesus is healing large crowds of Gentiles that are coming to him from all over the place. So what is Jesus saying? He is saying, at least, there is a priority in God's redemptive plan. In what he was sent to do, he was sent first to gather, to bind up, to heal, and to bring back to himself the lost sheep of Israel. And the plan was to gather them first, so they can then in turn gather the nations. This was God's plan all along. We'll come back to that later. But Jesus says, there's a priority here in my mission. How does the woman respond to that in verse 25? What Jesus said, it doesn't face her, it doesn't stop her. She knelt down. This word is usually translated worship. It's translated that way in verse 33 of chapter 14. The disciples in the boat, when Jesus got in and the calm came, was restored after the storm, they worshipped him. Same word. She says, Lord, kneeling down. Again, second time she used this term of reverence and respect. Help me. And then how does Jesus respond to that? He says, it isn't right or proper to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, now here we are, the most difficult part of all. It keeps getting more shocking. A dog. It's clear what Jesus means here, is it not? I think the children are the house of Israel. And no one would throw their food to their dogs if their kids are going hungry. Feed the children first right? At this time, the context is many Jews and many rabbis would speak of Gentiles as dogs in a very derogatory and an offensive way. 
But Jesus is doing something slightly different here. And we need to know how he's approaching this and what he's actually doing. First, there are two main words for dogs that were used at the time in Greek. And, and likely, Jesus could have been speaking to this woman in Greek. That was the language they shared in common. One of these words was a straight-up insult, dog. Street dog, scavenger dog. But the word that Jesus uses here is a different term. It can be a diminutive, affectionate term, like puppy, house puppy, the puppy of the house. As one pastor said, as I was reading what he said, the Greek word here is actually the word chihuahua. Okay, not really, but that gets across the point. It softens the usual term that was used as a slur or an insult, a term of ethnic superiority. So it just makes you think and pause and go, well, what's Jesus doing here? Maybe he's not doing the typical Jewish rabbi thing. And notice Jesus didn't directly call her a dog. He didn't say, you are a dog. It's indirect. He gives her a kind of proverb, almost like he's saying, well, what do you say to this? And in the proverb, did you notice? The dogs have a place in the house with the children. They're not outside on the streets, they're in the house. Still, with all that said, children versus dogs is not exactly a compliment. All this softens it a little. It gives some of the context, but she's desperate. She's coming to him, and Jesus seems like he's putting obstacles in her way, at the very least. Not that he's just saying no, but in a slightly or not so slightly offensive way. So what does the woman do now? Verse 27, this didn't stop her. Yes, Lord. Again, she kept her reverence and respect, even though she could have been insulted at this point. She agreed and acknowledged, I, I am not a part of the house of Israel. I see there is a priority in God's plan. She acknowledged that and said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And you got to just go respect right there, right? What a comeback. Respect to her. Jesus had left the door open a little bit using this word picture of the dog in the house, the puppy of the house. And she saw that and said, oh, that door, that little crack in the door, I'm walking through that. This is going to date me um, for some of you, but if you've seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, there's a classic line from that movie, right, where... The main character, he wants to know if he has a chance with the woman he's in love with. And he says, what are the chances, right? You know, like one in a hundred? And she's like, no. More like one in a million. And what does he say? So you're saying there's a chance, right? That's kind of like what's going on here. The woman says, even the dogs in the house get the crumbs that fall. Just the crumbs are enough. Now, the shock here is no one ever gets the best of Jesus in a debate. As far as I can see, nowhere else except here. She wins. What can he say to that? As a side note, because it's Mother's Day, I think we're meant to see her as one of the Bible's greatest mothers. She did everything she could. Nothing would stop her from bringing her child to Jesus. Nothing would get in her way. She has a true mother's heart. How does it end? Verse 27. 
Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you want. And then at that point, her daughter was healed at that moment. When he calls her woman, that's a very affectionate term. And what he says about her faith is one of the greatest of praises of a person's faith that we have from the lips of Jesus. It's maybe tied for first place all time. There's the Roman centurion, another Gentile, and this Canaanite woman. Two people who would have been tied for last place in the spiritual worthiness rankings of the time. Those two people are the two people Jesus says, great is your faith. They were both hated. They were both outsiders, and they're two best examples of faith in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, written to Jewish Christians. So that's the most shocking part of all. It seemed like Jesus was going to exclude, deny her, but it's totally the opposite. It's the story of the greatness of faith of a Canaanite, and her daughter is healed. What a mom, what a woman, someone who really understood Jesus. So there it is. There's all the shocking elements of this story. How do we understand it? What's the purpose? And let me tell you this, there's quite a divide in interpretation of this story. And here's how I want to explain the main two camps as I see them. Camp one, perspective one, did Jesus change his mind? Did Jesus make an exception here? Did Jesus broaden his mission when he saw the woman's faith? Option one. Or option two, did Jesus intend this result all along? There is a way to hold to the first view and hold to the full divinity of Jesus. It definitely acknowledges humanity. But I don't think that view is best. I think view two is the way that we are meant to see the purpose of this story, that Jesus did intend this result all along. Here's what I think is happening. Jesus was testing this woman's faith, and at the same time, he was testing his disciples' faith. He was playing the part of what you might expect from a Jewish rabbi of the day in order to lead to this very unexpected result that no one would have anticipated and maybe his disciples didn't even want. Why? To more powerfully draw out this woman's faith and to redraw the boundaries of faith for his disciples. He's inviting this response from his disciples of shock. He's inviting and calling out this woman through the testing of this dialogue. Main problem people have with this interpretation, I think, is the way that we see testing. How could Jesus test her like this? She's desperate. She's needy. But if we see testing as a negative an unkind thing to do, then we would see Jesus as being unkind, kind of disingenuous. But that is not at all how the Bible describes testing and the testing of our faith. Remember, Jesus is a teacher. And some of you are students now. You've been students. Some of you have students in your home. When we are a student and there is a test, we feel like, My teacher is hating me, right? My teacher is cruel and mean. 
for giving me a test, especially a hard test. This is finals. This is the end of school. Maybe you guys have felt that. Is your teacher being mean and unkind for giving you a test? Even if you fail the test, is that good for you or is that bad for you? I know it is hard to accept, but the test is good. You know, we, we might think when we're students, just ask me the material. Ask me, did I do my homework? Do I know this subject? Just ask me, do you know this material, like all of it from this year? I don't need a final. I'll just tell you. I studied hard. I paid attention. I did my homework. But without a test, you'll never know. Do you really know the material? Did you really grasp it? Tests are given to reveal and to refine. For this woman, was her faith real? Was it genuine? Was this woman just parroting what she had heard when she said, have mercy on me, son of David? Did she have personal trust in Jesus as Lord and Messiah? Is Jesus just another option or thing to try? So she can try to get what she wants. Or is he Lord? Is he King? Was she just using words to get what she wanted? How about us? How do we really know about our faith? Do I mean what I say? Do I really believe what I say I believe? We don't really know ourselves unless we are tested. I think Jesus is saying here, if you really want the blessing and the power and the mercy of Israel's Messiah and King, you must understand the trust and the surrender that is due Israel's Messiah and King. Jesus tests people like this in many different places. Do you know the story of the Samaritan woman? What does he say to her? He says, go and call your husband, which was for her, ouch. <laughs> he hit her right where she was wounded. Right in, why did you have to go there, Jesus? What about the rich young ruler? Jesus says, you want eternal life? You think you've lived a good enough life? Sell all you have. Follow me right now. Wow. Why did he have to go there? Right into his heart's idol. Then there was the man who came up and said, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. He said, oh, well, I got to bury my father. Was it just an excuse? Jesus went right after it. And even earlier in Matthew, in chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, there were two blind beggars, both crying out same words as this woman used, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus tested them there too. He said, before he just said, okay, I'll heal you. He looked in their eyes and said, do you believe I can do this? Oh, you see from that, all different tests, depending on the person, depending on what was going on in their hearts, Jesus' tests are tailored to the heart and to this woman's heart. Jesus' tests are not pass or fail. Instead, they are given to prove what's there, to reveal what is really there to the person and in the testing to refine what is there, to make it deeper and stronger and more real. Now, as I said, some think it's wrong or disingenuous for this dialogue to be a test. 
But one more reference I want to give to you, John chapter 6, verse 6. There's a personal detail there that the Gospel of John gives to us about the feeding of the 5,000. It says there, we looked at this story a few weeks ago, Jesus was lifting up his eyes. He saw a large crowd coming toward him, but he picked Philip. Out of all the disciples, it says he picked Philip, and he said, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. So here, Jesus is testing Philip to show him, to reveal to him the status of his own faith, and to develop deeper faith in Philip through testing. Here is the key. If faith, if our faith is the instrument, it's the thing that connects us to Jesus and all of his benefits, wouldn't it be unkind or unloving for Jesus not to test us, to show us if we have it, if it's real, to help us grow in it and to refine our faith? Is it more unkind for Jesus to test us, to show us those things, or to leave us on our own to figure it out? Back to this woman. Jesus is saying to her, I think you could get what you want right now. I could do it. I could heal your daughter. It's a good thing. It's a selfless thing that you want, the healing of your own child. But if you don't have me, if you don't trust me, if you don't know who I am, if you just want what I can give you, you won't have what you really need. If I just give you what you want, even in your most desperate moments, I wouldn't be loving you if I didn't test you to develop true faith in you so you know who I am. So Jesus was not driving this woman away. He was drawing her in, not just for healing, but so that she could have him, himself. I think this is the best way to understand this passage and this story that's shocking. It doesn't resolve everything. And maybe, just maybe, we're not supposed to. Maybe it's supposed to retain some of that shock and discomfort. I think Jesus here is not only testing the woman, but also his disciples. Those who would receive his commission to go to all nations. Jesus was never silent before this. It's almost as he forced his disciples to speak first. And by the end of the story, the disciples hear him give one of the greatest praises for any human being he encountered. A Canaanite woman on Gentile soil is the great example of faith. So as Jesus is leading this woman to great faith, Jesus is also showing his disciples what great faith is. You know, Peter in the storm last week, despite having walked on the water and all that happened there, when Jesus gets in the boat, he tells Peter what? You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And here this woman is the polar opposite. She is someone of great faith. All the disciples were <laughs> wondering, what? how can this be? We are those of little faith. And she is of great faith. And so in what seems to us strange, difficult, outside all of our categories, why would Jesus do it this way? 
He is drawing out the faith of this woman. And he is showing his disciples what great faith is. And I think those contain the lessons for us. There's the shock of the story. There is the purpose of the story, the testing. And there are the lessons for us. There are two main lessons. How Jesus draws boundaries here and how Jesus draws out faith. So let's look at those. How Jesus draws boundaries. Here's something we can take away from my Christian friends. Lesson one. God is working outside the boundaries you are comfortable with. Not might be. God is. I think we can take that away from this text. Jesus says his mission to Israel, the first step was to Israel so that he could complete his mission through Israel. It's not an exclusive priority. It's a missional priority. In John 10, Jesus said, You're my sheep. I'm gathering my sheep, but I have sheep who are not of this fold. All throughout the Bible we see those who are the insiders, who have the blessing of knowing who God is, are called to be a blessing to those who don't. Whoever is in, then is meant to go out. And Jesus went outside of the boundaries of Israel. Whoever is in is never to count anyone out. You know when your kids and you have, maybe you shared a room or at a sleepover or something like that. Often when you're kids, you, you draw a line like, here's the invisible line, me, my stuff and your stuff. Don't cross the line into my space. This is the boundary. You know, this past year, we've drawn a lot of boundaries. As a culture, it's happened within the church. Boundaries over masks and vaccine and COVID and COVID response, how to handle racial tension, political differences, what words you should and can't use and can to deal with all this, what concepts you can draw from to make sense of all this, what news do you follow? Boundaries. Boundaries, boundaries. Maybe this question will help. Help you to discern your own boundaries. It's a question that can help us see where we draw the line. Which group of people, I'm speaking to my Christian friends, do you think is the greatest threat to the church? Sometimes we use that kind of language. Threat-based. What, what's the threat? We need to draw the line. We need to make clear the boundaries here. This story is about someone coming from that group. However you answered that question, this is the greatest threat to the Christian faith. This is the greatest threat to the church. This story is about someone coming from that group, whoever that group is for you. And it ends with Jesus saying, she has the greatest faith that I've seen. This is an example, this woman, to the people who are think that they are the closest to me. There are boundaries, it's true. There are boundaries about what is right and wrong, true and false. That's important. That's clear in Scripture. But friends, we better be convinced about how we draw those boundaries. Otherwise, we will be guilty of driving people away from Jesus when we should be drawing them in towards Jesus. And Christians, we do 
spend a lot of wasted time in boundary drawing. Instead of drawing others to Jesus and let Him draw the boundaries. He has clear ones about sin and right and wrong and moral life and belief. He acknowledges those here and He redraws those around Himself. Yes, there are boundaries. There are boundaries God has set up, Canaanite versus Israelite. But look at how Jesus doesn't let those boundaries define how he treats this woman and welcomes her. He invites her, wouldn't we say, to blow past those boundaries to come to him. He draws her out. So if we're saying, maybe we found ourselves saying, I can't listen to that person because of where they're coming from. I can't learn from that person. They can't possibly teach me anything. Because it's coming outside of this boundary line that I believe is important. And here the disciples, through this confusing yet brilliant, I think, strategy of Jesus, are being shown God works outside the boundaries, way outside the boundaries that they would expect. So my Christian friends, let's just sit with that. Let's let Jesus draw the boundaries. And last, the lesson here is how Jesus draws out faith. Whatever we think of Jesus' method and choice of words here, he's not driving the woman away. He could have driven her away. Could have just put up the hand and said no. He's drawing out her faith. You don't understand exactly why he did it and chose the words he did, but that's clear. He's drawing out her faith. For her, this is what she needed. For her, her story, her background, in order for her to have a true transformative encounter with Jesus. Jesus had to deal with all these boundaries. And the way that Jesus did it for her, confusing, offensive, yes, but effective. There's no doubt by the end where she stands with Jesus. And Jesus removes all doubt by what he says about her faith. She was fully received by him, and she fully believed in him. Jesus said it. So friends, for us, the lesson, our faith, our faith grows. Our faith is shown for what it is. It is drawn out, not only in moments of quiet, study, prayer, that's important, but in times and in moments of wrestling with God. When we feel like we are being tested. Remember the story of Jacob? Jacob, whose name meant deceiver. He lived not by faith, but by his own cunning and deceit in life. Until he wrestled with God. And in the wrestling with God, this strange and crazy thing that we try to wrap our minds around. What does it mean to wrestle with God? We hear from the Lord says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And it was after Jacob wrestled with God that we begin to see him starting to walk by faith. His name was changed from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, he who strives with, wrestles with God. So maybe right now you feel like you're wrestling, you're in a wrestling match with God in some place in your life. Let me encourage you to ask these questions. 
How might Jesus be drawing out my faith? What is Jesus showing me about my faith? What is it being revealed to be in? It is in testing that faith moves from head to heart. A faith that knows Jesus as he is. A faith that preserves, that endures, that goes deep and grows roots is a faith only that is tested. And Jesus tailors his tests to the heart. It's not the same for all of us. He will tailor it to your heart, your story. He will bring various tests to develop and to draw out the kind of faith that this woman had. Final thought. What kind of faith was that? What is the greatest kind of faith that connects us to Jesus? The kind of faith that Jesus is trying to develop maybe in you right now if you feel like you're wrestling with God and he's testing you. Her faith was an unentitled faith, if that's a word, I think it's the best word, and a tenacious faith, an unentitled, tenacious faith. Any Faith that is entitled brings with it some level of merit. I deserve this. I've had a hard life. I've been good. I've been good enough. I've played the part. I thought you wanted me to play, God. I thought I followed all the steps. So you owe me. That's an entitled faith. One thing for sure. Jesus tested this woman here. On what basis do you come to me? She had to answer that question to press through. And she said, Jesus... If it's just crumbs, that's enough. She laid aside all sense of merit, of what she deserved, of what she was owed. She came with great humility. Even the dogs eat the crumbs. Our tests are meant to humble us and to root out entitlement. And our tests are meant to develop tenacity. A few commentators use this word for her, tenacious. It's so perfect. God is not a vending machine God where you put in the right amount, the right prayer, the amount of good works in prayer, and out comes exactly what you want. This woman is the only person, as far as I can tell, to ever win an argument with Jesus, as I said. She was persistent in maintaining. She was not going to be stopped until she grabbed a hold of Jesus and persevered through. Our tests can develop a tenacious faith in us. So friends, let me encourage you. It's not easy to wrestle with God. He is the Almighty God. Sometimes we don't know what He's doing. Sometimes we think He's putting up a wall. But as this passage shows us, if he's humbling you, if he's rooting out entitlement, and if he's developing tenacity in you, when you realize and see, he and he alone is the only one worth trusting in. He's not being unkind. He's not trying to trick you. He's trying to draw you deeper to himself. Let me encourage you with that, and let's pray that even in our testing, we would persevere through and see him more clearly for who he is. Let's pray to that end. Jesus.
We can't say we always understand you. Not in a text like this and not in your ways in our own lives. Things come our way in your providence. Things happen in our spiritual and emotional lives that we can't handle, we can't understand. We don't understand why you would allow it to come our way. And so I pray that the, ma- the message and the truth of this story would press into us where we are. For those wrestling with you right now, I pray that you would develop in them a heart that doesn't give up, that is tenacious, that says, I will not let you go until you bless me. It's hard to persevere in those moments, Lord. Sometimes we feel like giving up. We feel like you're not on our side, and I pray you would encourage those who are there. And I pray you would challenge us all that you're a God who works outside the boundaries we have set up. Move us out. Help us see what we can learn from the most unlikely and unexpected places. We thank you that even when we don't understand, even when it feels like we have to persevere and press through, you are drawing us deeper to yourself. We know that is what we most need, and so that is what we ask for. And we pray it in your powerful name. Amen.